He begins in verse 8 talking talking to men. What is it that I want for men? I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. When he says, I desire that this happens in every place, this, this calls us back to the Old Testament ideal. And the Old Testament ideal, here's what, here's what God had said in the Old Testament to the children of Israel. He said for, uh, in Malachi 1.11, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place. Incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, declares the Lord of the Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. So the Lord lays out, look here, here is what he means when he talks about in every place. He means everywhere. When when God's talking about his name being great among the nations, is he just talking about in the closet? Is he only speaking about in our private life? When God says, I want this done in every place, what's he talking about? He's talking about the public proclamation uh, that the Lord is God. And so we, we see that his first call then is that I desire, this is Paul speaking in his apostolic authority, right? He's an apostle, he gets to make the rules. So I am telling you my desire that in everywhere men ought to pray. Now whenever the church was gathered, what what they would say, hey we're going for, what do we gather for? Well we gather for teaching, we gather for exhortation, we gather for prayer. So he's saying look I want men to pray. In in essence what he's declaring is I want men to stand up in uh, opportunities to um, Proclaim the name of the Lord publicly. So whether that's in a service, church service, whether that's on a corner, whether that's where you work, doesn't really matter. He wants men to stand. And one of the, I I would not say certainly, I don't think this is a frustration at Calvary Chapel View. I think we're blessed. We have a lot of men who are willing to stand, and we'll see as we go into the next chapter that there's qualifications for that, right? As we talk about the elders and deacons and what that looks like uh, according to the scripture. But as we look, we're blessed that we have a lot of men who say, yeah, yay, I want to uh, stand and pray. I want to be a part of what's going on. So here's some of the things that he's setting aside this distinction for men to, that want to say, you know, I want more. I, I want to, I want to step out and be uh, a visible leader within the church. What's that look like? He says, I want you to be lifting holy hands. Now, don't. There's a lot of things we, a lot of symbol that we want to be able to understand. But ultimately, lifting up holy hands is saying, I'm outwardly and inwardly ready for ministry. For your hands to be holy, they had to be cleansed, right? We sing songs like, give us clean hands, you know what I mean? So that, so that the attitude of our heart is, I want my life to be a life like Paul would call, and we'll see in a later chapter as we look at elders, that, uh, that you are above reproach. Lifting up holy hands is saying, I can lift up my hands because my hands are clean. 
You get what I'm saying? My hands are clean. And I am not just uh, committed in word, but I'm also committed in deed. So the word part's easy. Being committed in word and deed, lifting up holy hands. And then there's a certain attitude, right? <clears throat> the attitude is without wrath and without quarreling. So the attitude, the, the idea of wrath is a presence of anger. And if, the pres- if anger is present, it usually means something else isn't, right? Wrath, when you're wrathful, you are usually not patient. Kind, forgiving, all of these things are requirements to maintain a, a relationship in serving the Lord, right? This is fruit of the Spirit stuff. If I'm walking in wrath, the Bible would declare, right, that the wrath of man does not accomplish what? The righteousness of God. The wrath of man is not like the wrath of God. The wrath of God is a is a uh, is a response of God, not a changing of his emotional state. God's never in a bad mood. He's always God. You and I, we get in a bad mood. If God brings his wrath, it's just judgment for man's sin. When man brings wrath, it's usually the loss of self-control. Right? You understand the difference? God doesn't lose his self-control. He maintains, he judges as he has declared he will judge, and he calls that judgment his wrath. You and I, we blow up. No? We have any blow-uppers in here? Yeah, so so the Bible is saying, look, when you come and you're lifting holy hands, <coughs> we want to do it without wrath. So that is a, there's a requirement in that. And, and this is where it's really important for, for men and or women, because it's going to apply across the board. But the idea to come and to be a part of what's going on and to be a part of what, how God's moving means that I am concerned with my hands. Are my, are my hands dirty? Do I need, what do I need to do if they are? It's not to say I'm disqualified because my hands are dirty. What do you do if your hands are dirty? Wash your hands. And how do I wash my hands? I do what the Bible teaches me. What's the Bible tell me? In 1 John 1, 9. Confess our sins. And what? He is faithful and just to make you give penance. No, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if my hands are dirty, I, what, instead, I don't do it when I come up to pray. What do I, when do I do it? Before. Are my hands dirty? Lord, I need to wash my hands. Right? And do I have wrath in my heart? Am I angry? Am I bitter? What is this? This calls for, specifically for men to say, I need to evaluate myself. And I have to lay aside my wrath. God doesn't want me to pray in wrath. Every time a man throughout the pages of scripture reacted in wrath, he brought condemnation upon himself. Every single time. So God says, I want you to set that aside. I don't want you specifically, I don't want you to come with wrath. And I don't want you to come with quarreling. And quarreling, the idea of quarreling is defined as hostile feelings that issue in hostile actions. He doesn't want you ready for a fight. Don't come to pray ready for a fight. 
Don't be filled with wrath. Don't be looking for a fight. I want you to be ready inwardly and outwardly so that you're able, so that you're willing. James would call us in James 1.19. He says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we got to, what, let a man examine himself and see where he's at. And again, the point is not to find a reason to be disqualified. The point is to find your willingness as men to submit yourself to the judgment of God, to ask for his forgiveness, repent, and be made right. Does that make sense? I desire that men everywhere. First Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Why? So that your prayers will not be hindered. So let a man examine himself. I want men everywhere to come, to pray, to lift up holy hands, to be a part of the things that God's doing. He's going to give further qualifications for that next week when we talk about elders. But he's specifically, generally talking about men. He first says, this is my call for men. And then he turns uh, his eyes toward women. He says, likewise, in verse 9. So in the same way, likewise... That women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Again, he's looking toward women, toward specifically toward women in public. Just like men in public, he's desiring that they would lead spiritually, that they would step to the forefront, that they would make sure their hands are clean, they don't have wrath in their heart, they're not harboring unforgiveness or ready for a fight, so that they're able to lead. And in the same way, women should adorn themselves respectfully. So there's, in our, in our time, this is not super popular, right? This is part of the patriarchy. The patriarchy, the the oppression of man against women, which, you know, probably is a part of history. We can't hide from that. There certainly has been the uh, oppression of women, but I don't think that's God's purpose. You guys ever known a woman who has a broken man picker? Every once in a while, you know... I, I in jest may say, you know, she's got a broken man picker. How come? Because, well, they always pick the same kind of guy. And then what's the guy do? Does him wrong, right? Is abusive or disrespectful toward them. And you have this cycle that continues, right? This cycle, what, what I sometimes will call... A broken man picker. And, and <clears throat> part of that for ladies is because in the same way that men need to be submitted to the Lord and to bring their things before the Lord, a woman needs to find her value in the Lord and not in something else. And there's a sense in which 
especially in our world today, you know, no matter how the feminist argument may come about the, that the, it's the patriarch or, or man's fault, and certainly man has his own role to play in it, but there is a point in which a woman is not respecting herself based on some of the choices that she makes. I have a friend who uh, has been married a couple of times and is will sometimes belabor the fact that she can't find a good man. Can't find a good man. But sometimes I think, you know, I don't know, maybe it's simpler for me, but sometimes I think, Because of a lack of respect for themselves and others, women bait hooks with the wrong thing. Women have a tendency, some women, not all, some women have a tendency to bait the hook with their own sexuality. And then they catch a certain kind of man. The man is attracted to the bait. And... When we look at what scripture is calling us toward, it's calling us toward an attitude of respect and modesty. And it's interesting because in Rome, at the time, some of the same things that we experienced in our world were going on then. There was a strong feminist movement through Rome. Uh, women were finding themselves having the opportunity to, to, to fulfill greater and greater roles. And they were pushing against uh, what were the cultural norms? Well, this is a cultural norm, so I'm going to push against that. And some of the ways that that comes out is in our the dress, what we might choose to dress, how we might choose choose to <coughs> adorn our ourselves, or how a woman may adorn herself. And so the idea here is Paul saying, you know, this is going on in their world as well, and he's saying, look, women can spend a lot of time getting ready. And preparing themselves, and I know because I'm married to one. And preparing themselves and getting ready before the mirror and looking at themselves. And one of the things I, I try to encourage my wife in is that I'm her mirror. And sometimes we make the world the mirror. You guys know what I mean? So the world says this is what is beautiful. The world says this is what's right. The world says this is what looks nice. And we're in this battle culturally with what the world says. And it comes in, in direct conflict with what God's word says. God's word says that modesty is beautiful. Not how much can I show, but being modest. Finding my value not in what the world says about me and what I how I dress, what I do with my hair or my makeup or all of those things. But what do I do? Am I finding my value in the Lord? And here's the real rub. Just like there's a, a real rub for the men, right? There's a real rub for the women. Are you or will you find your value in him? In being what God says is beautiful. Did you catch what he said was beautiful? God said what is beautiful is a woman who professes godliness with good works. 
God says, a, a woman who is following me, that's, that's value is not in. Now, there's, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to say there's something wrong with certain hairdos or certain jewelry. There's a lot of cultural issues that are being brought up here. <coughs> but one of the things that we want to recognize is that, is that the thing that makes you valuable? Then it's not okay. If the thing that makes you valuable is the kind of, of clothes, the style of clothes you have, if it's the kind of hairstyle that you have, if it's the kind of, of uh, jewelry that you might wear, all of these things, they're, they are not the things that make you beautiful before the Lord. What makes a, a woman beautiful before the Lord is a woman who's submitted to God. What makes a man beautiful before the Lord is a man submitted to God. What is it that makes a man or woman in a place where God is, is um, not okay, is pride. And pride is usually what pushes back against the things God says. Well, I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to follow this idea. Well, the idea simply is that we would dress with modesty and self-control. And self-control is going to be a theme that Paul's going to build throughout his epistles about what it is to walk in the Spirit. To control self. Anybody have a hard time controlling self? I have a hard time controlling self. Uh, you know, if you want to see whether or not I'm okay controlling self, put me on a diet. <laughs> I'm on a diet. The one thing that I want is a bowl of ice cream. I could go a month, two months without ice cream. Tell me I can't have it. You can't have ice cream. What do I want? I want ice cream. Tell me, you know what I mean? I have this. So I, I recognize that there are desires within myself that need to be curbed. Four men, four women. One of the, one of the things that I think is interesting, especially in regard to dress, is, is the idea of being having a concern for your fellow man. Now, that's not very popular right now either because all men have toxic masculinity and we should just beat ourselves in the head with two-by-fours. But in the long history of mankind, beating men in the head with two-by-fours still does not get this out of their head. Just so you know. And... Part of what God is going to ask man to do, he's going to ask man to be the protector of, of woman, the shield bearer. And we'll talk about men's failures to do that. And part of what God's going to ask women to do is what? Get behind the shield. In the shield wall in ancient battle, the place where you were relatively safe was behind the shield. The place where you were not safe was when you got out in front. So God's saying, I want the men in front with shields, and I want the women behind the men. Caring for one, of, one another. Caring for one another in what God is asking, how God is moving. So we want to have a commitment to godliness. A commitment that says, man, I want to do the things God is asking me to do. So what does he mean by good works here in this verse? In Titus 3.8, he says, this, is a saying, this saying is trustworthy, and I want 
you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for the people. So God wants us to do good works, right? Specifically here, he's talking about women not being focused on outward appearance more than on godliness and good works. 1 Timothy 5.10 says, Having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. 1 Timothy 5 specifically is talking about widows and the qualifications for a widow being a widow of the church that the church cares for and watches over. And he describes her good works here. And he says, if, if she has brought up children, bringing up children is not a, a, a demand for good works. But if she has, that's good. Has she shown hospitality? Has she cared for other saints, other believers? Has she cared for the afflicted, the sick? Has she devoted herself to every good work? This is a description of, of the good works that, that God may be talking about. And strict directly from the same author paul here in first timothy 5 in first timothy 6 he says there to do good to be rich in good works and then he describes it to be generous and ready to share generosity a willingness to share the things that you have titus three fourteen, the same author he says and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Good works. When there's an urgent need, an urgent situation uh, that you may have the answers to. These are the kind of good works that he's talking about. So what, what Paul is saying for the woman. Hey, but don't worry about how you look on the outside. Rather, let your adornment be in godliness and good works. Doing the things that you know please the Lord. And then the last thing that we're going to look at is our attitudes reveal whether or not, hey, do I have support for God's direction in leadership? In verse 11, he says, let a woman, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, in our culture, this seems a little severe right so i want you to understand what he's saying when he says i want a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness he's asking for a woman within the church to be willing to accept the role of learner for example here's here's a great example you guys remember mary and martha and martha was busy doing the work right she was doing what she was a little bitter because mary was where what was she doing learning jesus said i'm not taking that from her she has chosen what the better way yeah that's a that's good i'm not taking that away from her so here what paul is saying is i i want women to accept the role of learner a a learner the role of learner within the ancient world was somewhat was was described as one who was quiet and submissive why because they are receiving from the authority the authority would have been the rabbi, the teacher. So the idea of quietness is not that you can't open your mouth, you can't ask questions, you can't talk, has nothing to do with any of those things. It just means will you accept the role of learner, and learner listens. 
Right? And that, that's, the, that's the point that he's making. It's not about, maybe you've heard before, they divided men and women, and women were shouting questions back and forth. Nobody knows if that's real. Nobody knows if that really happened. But what we do know for sure is no matter whether you were a child or a man or a woman, if you were a learner, that you would have been described in these terms, quiet and submissive, to hear, to, to learn from the example of the teacher, to follow that example. So the, the, the call is, let a woman be a learner. Are you willing to be a learner? Some people, you ever try to teach somebody who doesn't want to learn? We got any teachers that will admit they're teachers in church today? Oh, we got a couple teachers. How frustrating is it to try to teach somebody who don't want to learn? Man, that's crazy, right? So the, the point is, the hardest person to teach, for anyone to teach, I don't care what, if, whether you're a coach, whether there's somewhere in your life you've tried to teach someone else something, and it's hard to teach someone who won't learn. So the call here is, in this, in God's design for leadership, will a woman be a learner? In verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority. There's... Those are two specific issues we're going to talk about in chapter 3, which set apart the elder from the rest of the body. So when Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority, he is specifically saying, I do not permit a woman to be an elder, to exercise authority. Now, just as an aside, part of the church, a lot of churches are governed a lot of different ways. We are not normal Calvary Chapel. I'm as normal as I can be anyways. And if you've been around very long, you know that I'm not all that normal anyhow. But one of the things that I specifically like about Calvary Chapel is the right to be autonomous. Meaning you can set up government how you want to set up your government. They don't tell you that thus, this is the way thou shalt do government. Now, our government, we have chosen as a body to be elder-led. So we have true eldership. We, when, we, when we make a decision, and it drives the elders crazy, uh, but one of the things that I, um, well, I, I, demand might be too hard, but one of the things that is, I demand, without saying demand, give me another word, I don't know. One of the things I de- require, is, is that softer? Is that, <laughs> is that we all agree. And this is the same way I do my marriage. So... The same way I do my marriage, just for, for you men out there who, who maybe are struggling with the idea of what is it to lead. Well, one of the things that Jesus describes to us in leadership is servant leadership. Uh, willingness to serve others. He came to serve, right? The, the God of all creation came to serve. That's, that's mind-blowing. Uh, when I, I lead my family, my household, which currently is me and Kathy uh, and Joe... So I lead my family by the, this uh, tenet that we agree or we don't do it. And we might table it for six months or we might table it for a year or we might table it however long it's got to be tabled. Um, but if we're not all together, if Kathy and I do not agree, we don't see eye to eye, then whatever it is, I don't do it. Because the same Holy Spirit that God has given my wife, He has given me. And the Holy Spirit is not going to give us two different things to do. He's not going to say A is true and then A is false. That won't work. That's contradiction, right? 
So if the Holy Spirit's leading us, he'll lead us unified. Do the same thing within the board. And which causes us a lot of consternation. And some people may say, why does it take the board so long to do things? Because we got to agree. Which usually means we got to argue and fight and kick and scratch and figure out what's going on and pray and seek the Lord and ask God to change hearts and until we get to that spot. But that's important to me. Why? Because the scripture would say, choose men full of the Holy Spirit. If an elder is a leader within the church and the ability to be authoritative in teaching, which we're going to see in chapter 3, that an elder is able to teach, right? And that he has authority over the body. In that position, according to what Paul is saying here, my reading of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is only to be held by men. Doesn't mean women can't teach, prophesy, or pray in public. It means she can't teach or have authority. That's a direct correlation to eldership. Does that make sense? So now there's now how that's applied, different people do different different things in different ways. Some people would just say, I'm gonna keep myself out of any gray area and I just won't have a woman teach uh on Sunday morning or or whatever case. But the Bible specifically talks about women teaching, the older women teaching the younger women, women teaching women. The Bible specifically talks about women women teaching children. The Bible specifically talks about women prophesying. The Bible specifically talks about women speaking in tongues and praying in the church gathered. So those things are all good. It's all good. But what Paul, as an apostle, says is a woman can't be an elder. Because... God wants man to take the role. Does that mean a woman can't be as qualified as a man? No, not at all. What it tends to mean is because man screwed this up, and God's like, you're going to get it right before I come back. You're going to accept the role of authority. And here's the reality. A woman will never stand before God based on what was done. But a man will. A man will stand before God on how he led his family. Whether you chose to lead or not is irrelevant. You will stand. And there are specific reasons. We're, we're looking at them real quick because I'm already out of time. But in verse 13, <coughs> he's going to give three reasons for his judgment here, okay? So again, I want to emphasize 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. Specifically, in the next very next chapter, he's going to point that specific role to an elder. She is to remain quiet means she is to accept the role of a learner. Okay, verse 13. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. So God made Adam first. Now, of all the creatures that God made, he made male and female, right? When he came to man, he just made male and he waited for man to realize he was missing something, right? Remember, he named all the creatures. And then he said there's, he found nothing comparable to him. No, nothing that, that was a part of him. So what did God do? He put a deep sleep on Adam and he pulled from Adam. So out of Adam was birthed woman because she came from a man. So the first woman comes from a man and then Adam names her. All of these things have uh, uh, a, a established part of God's order. So it's not, doesn't make one better than the other, has nothing to do with value in any way, but it does have to do with God's order. What is God's order? That he wants man to protect. 
Because the very next thing he talks about here is what? Verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So Adam was not deceived, but Adam was with Eve. What was Adam supposed to be? Shield bearer. That means your job, Adam, is to protect Eve. She came from you. You're responsible for her. You get what I'm saying? So Adam, you're supposed to have a shield. So when that slippery little serpent comes, and uh, um, I know we have this, so many traditions, the, the, the word for snake is probably better uh, translated as shining one. The snake probably was an angel, which is why Eve's talking to this person. Which makes a little more sense than the snake. But we'll see some of the pictures as we, as we go on. Certainly there's something within the judgment, uh, right? You're going to have to crawl on your belly. Part of the idea is that judgment is, is denying access that an angel once had in the heavens to now on the earth. So, so there's certainly some things to talk about, but I don't want to, I don't want to get too sidetracked on it. The idea, this serpent comes and talks to Eve and Eve talks to him and Adam just sits down and watches TV. He can't be bothered. The, the, you know, the, the bears are playing and he can't, he's not paying attention. And the next thing you know, his, his wife is making a deal with the devil, right? <clears throat> and then she eats and then Adam goes, oop, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Yeah, where were you when you were supposed to lead? You're supposed to protect. You didn't do it, Adam. And God's still calling for that. Protect. God still, his design still is to cover. So when Eve was deceived, don't read this wrong. Who gets the blame? That's right. When God comes and finds him, he says, Adam, what have you done? And Adam goes, the woman you gave me. So who was responsible? Adam was responsible. Now judgment came down upon them all, right? God's judgment. And Paul recognizes this, so he goes to this last section of this last part of the of verse 15 where we're going to wrap things up. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. She is singular, that points toward Eve. If they continue in the faith, points generally to women. You have two different uses of pronouns. And, and so there's two ways of looking at this. So I'm going to tell you both of them. And you guys can pick what you want. And I'll tell you what I, what I think. Um, one is that she will be saved through childbearing as a point to the birth of Messiah coming through the woman, not through the man. So the woman is the one through whom Messiah will come. The first mention... Proto-evangelicum is a fancy term for the first mention of the gospel from Genesis uh, 3.16. So they say that she being saved through childbearing is talking about the birth of Messiah through which will come uh, everyone's salvation. And then generally for women, the idea of, of walking in the faith, right? Stay If you stay in the faith, you're part of the faith. You persevere, you finish the race, you're good. So that's one interpretation. I don't really like it. So I have an alternate. In Genesis 3.16, it says to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. 
In pain you will bring forth children. So the idea for me of childbearing, that she will be saved through childbearing, that the idea of childbearing carries the idea of pain. There's pain involved, right? And yeah, that's what my wife told me. Yeah. Yeah, while she was pulling my lip over my head, right? <clears throat> so, so there's pain. There's pain involved. And then in 1 Corinthians 3.15, there's a structure in this sentence that, that, that's, that I think is why some people wrestle with it. So let me give you the structure. The structure of the sentence is, uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing. That's weird. What, what, what does he mean by that? Saved through childbearing. Like your salvation comes if you have kids. What's he talking about? 1 Corinthians 3.15, the same author uses the same structure. Paul wrote both books. And he uses the same structure in the sentence in 1 Corinthians 3.15. It's a little more clear. In 1 Corinthians 3.15, it says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, <clears throat> though he himself will be saved through fire. Well, it's not the fire that saved him, right? He'll be saved in spite of the fire. The fire is the judgment. So our works being burned up means... For whatever reasons, our, 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 what we built with was not gold and precious gems, which, which gets better in fire. It was wood, hay, and straw, which gets burned up in the fire. So salvation comes in spite of the fire, in spite of the trial, in spite of the struggle. It's possible when you go through this text, and prior to getting into the discussion of elders and deacons in the next chapter, that we start to think, uh, God is against me. <clears throat> this curse, this curse is more than I can bear. And so what God wants us to understand through what the Apostle Paul is saying is, no, the curse won't be an obstacle to your salvation. It won't be in the way. Just as man should be saved through, as in passing through fire, which is his trial, the hindrance that's in his way, in spite of which he escapes, so also she shall be saved through, as passing through her childbearing, which is her trial, her curse, not a means of salvation, but hindrance in the way of it. So my idea is that the idea of she'll be saved through childbearing, that, that that's referring to God's curse because we're talking about Adam and Eve and the things that happened with them and the curse that God brought uh, upon Eve. But that the curse, while is a hindrance, she will be saved in spite of that hindrance. In spite of the curse. Man, the same way, is saved in spite of the curse. God made a way. Right? God has provided a way of salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what is important then, that last part, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control, which are all evidences of the reality that what you say with your lips is true in your life. Does that make sense? So it's not that, that I have to find a way to... To have sincere faith, sincere love, sincere holiness, and sincere self-control in and of myself. 
But listen, if I am submitted to God and God is moving in my life, He's my King. He has given you not the spirit of fear, but the spirit of power and of love and of self-control. That God, by His Spirit, has these things. So, so if these things be true, then this is the mark of the life. So your curse, the curse of woman for having been deceived, the curse of Adam for having been for being a transgressor, the curse that came upon mankind as a result of man's fall doesn't stop man from being able to be saved. In spite of it, he's still able to be saved. She is still able to find salvation in spite of the pain of life and the fall of man. She can find it because the Holy Spirit will fill her with faith, love, holiness, and self-control. And as we go on to chapter 3, then we'll see God's intent for other positions of leadership within the church. We'll talk about those things next week. Uh, I will be at coffee in the morning, <laughs> so if you have questions, comments, concerns, and you want to meet me across the street at 7, I'll be there. That's a sign that we're finished. Why don't you stand with me and let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for this time that we can stand before you, and God, we do thank you for your word. And I do pray, God, that we would be of people, not who say we need to drag this ancient book into the 21st century, but rather that we would allow this ancient book to transform us. Our thinking, our plans, may they follow suit with yours. May we say that we are a people of the book, obedient to the book, May the book challenge us. May, may the book uh, um, challenge us in, in a variety of ways in our life. But ultimately, may we decide, make the choice to say, I bow the knee to my king. For in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word came to Jeremiah and touched him. And the word came to Ezekiel and lifted him up. And the word has been busy throughout the history of mankind. So God, may we bow our knee to God the Word. May we bow the knee before the Son of God who has become our mediator to bridge the gap between our guilt before a holy God, His Father. And, and He is willing, even within the Godhead, the Son submitted to the Father, the Spirit submitted to the Son and the Father. Yet the Bible teaches them as one, unified. Just as God would direct us within creation according to the order with which he put things together. God, I just want to be obedient to what you declare. So Lord, I pray that we would just be men and women willing to submit ourselves to God's purpose and plan and to see God move in whatever way he may move in our time. Oh Lord, we pray that as, as people obedient to your word, God, that you might 
move in our midst. Draw us unto yourself. <coughs> Carry us through this time that we might see uh, your salvation. And may we, as men and women gathered together in one body in Christ, may we lift up our eyes for our redemption draws near. And God, may you be glorified in the unity of your people as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.